Well, today, we light our third candle of Advent, the candle of joy. We've lit two already, of hope and of peace, all celebrating Jesus, that Jesus is our hope, that Jesus is our peace. He's the one we cling to and hold on to for our hope, for everything in life. He's the one that has also made peace with God. And this third candle is the candle of joy. And what it's celebrating is the fact that in Christ, because of all that He's done for us, we find joy. It's a joy that isn't tied to our circumstances. It's not a joy tied to uh, our world. It's not a joy tied to, to, to whether or not things are going good or bad in our world. It is a joy that is tied to Christ and what He's done, which means we can rejoice in Christ regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what's happening, as we consider who Christ is and what He's done. I like to say it this way, we get the privilege of celebrating Jesus, and that's what this candle signifies, is, is our joy in Christ. And our goal during this whole Advent season has been to really look at Christ so that we can worship Him and can find joy in Him. And this has really been the focus as we've been unpacking the person of Jesus. And we're going to do that again today, and we're going to continue with the same pattern we have of these past few weeks where I'll take a moment and, and set the table for what we're going to talk about. Then we're going to sing, and we'll unpack some Scripture together and sing some more, and, uh, and, and I'll unpack some more of the Scripture, and then we'll sing again. Kind of a call and response to be able to worship Christ today. And our focus today is on the preparation for Jesus. How did the first century, how did the, 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 when Jesus came the first time, how did Israel prepare for his coming? We're going to look at that today because I think there's some lessons that we can learn in there about how we can relate to Jesus. We're going to see how great he is, how wonderful he is, and then what we're going to do is we're going to learn then through that how Israel prepared, and I think it teaches us how to, how to in essence, have our hearts ready for Christ. You know, there's a song that we sing at Christmas time, Joy to the World, common song. There's a line in that song. Let every heart prepare him room. I don't know if you ever stop to think, what does that mean? How do you prepare your heart for Jesus? If you're in Christ, you say, well, hey, Christ already has given me a new heart, his spirit's in me. What, do I have to prepare? What does that mean? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about our hearts in relation to Jesus. We're going to talk about the reality that sometimes in life, our hearts can become kind of like computers. We can get bogged down with kind of a lot of junk. And every once in a while, you just got to kind of clean it out and get your focus back on Christ. Worries, cares, you know, misplaced loyalties can all kind of vie for a place in your heart. And sometimes there's a cleansing that needs to happen, a sense of saying, I want to refocus on Jesus. And that's what we're going to do today. We're going to learn how Israel prepared, and then what we will do in our own hearts then is focus on, on then what do we learn from that, and then how do we kind of, in essence, do a little cleaning out of our heart and see if there's any loyalties or loves that are there that shouldn't be there, and get a chance to, uh, to be focused, and in essence, do what the song says, that joy to the world. Let's prepare room. Let's prepare a room for him in, in essence. Let's, let's get ready and be focused so that we can celebrate 
Jesus. So that's what we're going to do this morning as we look at the Gospel of Mark. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. And then after pray, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing Joy to the World. But just join me in prayer right now. Father, I thank you for the privilege we have of being reminded of the hope and the peace and the joy that is in Jesus. I thank you that we get to today deal with some of the things that that crowd out our love and our loyalty to Jesus. All of us go through life and we, we, we have many things that compete for, for the attention of our heart and our mind and our focus. Many things that get in the way of devotion to Jesus. I pray, Lord, that as we go through this, we would find the joy of being able to, to clean things out, the joy of being able to to set aside misplaced loves and and misplaced loyalties and to be able to focus on Christ this morning. And so, Lord, as we go through this process and we learn from your word, I pray that it would cause us to to love Jesus so much today. Lord, I pray that your spirit would allow us to see a huge, huge picture of Jesus. Let him be so precious to us that it would bring comfort to us who are hurting, that it would bring peace to those who are unsettled, that it would bring strength to those who are weak, to those who have lost their way. May it provide direction and guidance and light. So Lord, may we see Jesus this morning in all of His beauty and glory. Thank You for this time that we have. I pray, God, it would be worshipful in your sight. In Christ's name, amen. To take your Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Luke. Luke, cha- nope, Mark. Sorry. Okay, you need to know this up front. I cannot get Luke out of my head. Okay, we've preached through Luke, we're studying the Acts most of the year, and today we're in Mark, and for some reason... I have Luke going on in my head. So, I'm going to ask you to do something for me. If I say Luke, blow that off and just insert Mark, okay? If I tell you to turn to like Luke, well, I got no scripture cross-references to Luke. So anything that I tell you that I say Luke, just know that I mean Mark, because for some reason, I just cannot get this Luke out of my head here. So Mark chapter 1 is where we are this morning. We're looking at Mark chapter 1, and we're looking at the first eight verses. And as you're turning there, I'm going to read them for you. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his weight and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, 
but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What an incredible introduction to the birth of Jesus. We're going to see three things as we unpack these eight verses today. We're going to look at the person and work of Jesus. It's the first thing we're going to see. Then we're going to see how Israel prepared for his coming. And then we'll see how that preparation was, to, was, was because when Jesus came, he was going to bring something, a provision, the very Spirit of God. We're going to see all of that today. And our goal is to focus on our hearts. Our goal is to focus on our hearts. Our goal is for us to, to do what we just sung. Let every heart prepare. Sometimes, like I said, our hearts get cluttered with a lot of things. There's lots of things that vie for our attention and for our emotions. And today is a good day for us to just stop and say, okay, I want to come face to face with who Jesus is. And I want to make sure that my heart, my focus, and my loyalties are on Him. And I want to learn what to do when the system clogs up and how to deal with it. And we're going to see all of that today. But in order to do that, we first need to look at the person and work of the Messiah. I want you to look at verse 1 with me. Notice the way Mark begins this gospel. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So he's saying, okay, here are the first words that I need to tell you about the good news. That's what gospel means. The good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, what Luke is... See, I did it. What Mark is doing... (laughs) I'm telling you, Luke's going to keep coming out of my mouth. What Mark is doing... What he's saying is, he's saying, okay, I want to explain to you these early things, the things you need to know about the entrance of Jesus into the world. I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about this first verse, and I was thinking about how this is playing out. He's saying, okay, Jesus is coming, and then one came to prepare the way. And I started thinking about the fact that Luke, Mark, okay, Yes, again, I, I, you know, and I catch it and I get mad at myself, so I'm just going to ignore that. Okay? What Mark is doing is what he's saying is, is he's saying, okay, I need you to know in verse 1 who Jesus is. I need you to know who he is. Because that will help you prepare. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about like in life. If you invite somebody over to your house, depending upon who that person is, determines how you prepare your house. Right? Right? So, so if, if, if one of my kids say, hey, we're, we're having a sleepover, can we invite so-and-so over for a sleepover? We say, sure. I don't do a whole lot of prepping for that. He says, sure, come on over. Just make sure there's food in the fridge. That's about it. That's the prep. But if you're saying, okay, we're going to invite over a bunch of extended family, well, now we clean. Right? Now we're actually like going through things and looking for dust that we never really pay attention to the rest of the week. Am I right? Right? You, you kind of go through, oh, we should dust that, or, you know. And then depending on the person's personality determines how much further you go in the preparation, right? Right? If they're kind of picky, nitpicky people, then you, you really clean and that kind of thing. Depending on the person determines how you prepare. It's the same kind of thing here. He's saying, I'm going to tell you who this one is. That's what verse 1 is. And then I'm going to tell you how I had to prepare the world for this one who's coming. So let's look at who he is. There's two titles given of Jesus here in verse 1. 
We have the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus or Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's a title. So Christ is one of them. And the second one is Son of God. In the first title, Christ, we see what Jesus came to do. It's a title that describes what he came to do. It's what I would call a front-loaded title. Now, to the Western world, for us, if you went out on the streets and you say, Jesus Christ, what's your first opinion? Somebody say, it's a swear word. Or somebody might say, you know, Christ is what I say when I get mad. Or it's somebody that people worship. But it's not really that front-loaded of a word. If you're living in the first century, especially if you're living in Israel, and you use the word Christ, it's a front-loaded term. It has meaning. Christ is just the, the Greek word for Messiah. That's all it is. It's the word Messiah. So, so what, what Mark is saying here is, I'm going to tell you the, the first words you need to know about the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. Now, if you were Jewish, you would realize something. That term Messiah is heavy. In fact, there are a bunch of statements or descriptions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. A whole bunch of them. In the Old Testament, he's called the seed of the woman. It's the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Right? He's going to take care of Satan. It's called the seed of Abraham. It's the one who's going to bless the nations of the world. He's called the prophet like unto Moses. He's the one who's actually going to be speaking the very word of God to humanity. He's called the priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. So he's going to hold a two-office role of both priest and king. He's the rod out of the stem of Jesse. He's the promised hope that was supposed to come, the promised leader who would come. He's Emmanuel, the virgin son. He's the one who's going to be born as the very promise of God that God says, hey, I am not going to leave you alone. I will be here forever. I'm going to come and take up residency with you. He's called the branch of Jehovah. That's the hope that we have. This branch was going to grow out of the destruction of Israel. That life was going to come out of the death and pain that was coming to Israel. And he's called the messenger of the covenant. He's the one who's going to bring the very covenant with God, the man. Look at those descriptions. Those, by the way, are just a handful of descriptions in the Old Testament for the Messiah. Just a handful of them. The reason why I want to point these out, this is just, you know, we could, I could just spend the rest of our time clicking off these descriptions of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So here's what Mark is saying. He's saying, listen, I want to tell you these first words you need to know about the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. And if you were longing for the Messiah, you would be thinking, wait a minute, Jesus is the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the prophet like the Moses, the priest of the order of Melchizedek, the rod out of the stem of Jesse, Emmanuel, the branch, the messenger. Yeah, this one has come. This is, who, this is, this is, this is what he's come to do. Now here's the point. All of these titles were given to show you Jesus is the one who's bringing all of the promised hope and blessing and protection and life 
an end to sin, an end to pain, an end to misery, and justice, and rule, and righteousness. That's who Jesus is. You could unpack every single one of those statements about Jesus, and an unpack, or about the Messiah, and you'd begin to see that he is this powerful one. That's who Jesus is. The good news of Jesus Christ. You know, the word Messiah is used a whole bunch, right? 514 times in the New Testament. Christ is used. 514 times. All 514 times, you've got to front load it with these kinds of definitions. So when you see Jesus Christ, you're not just seeing a last name. You're not just seeing a swear word. You're not just seeing a, just some you know, description. You are actually seeing the actual description that he is the anointed one bringing all of the blessings and protection, provision of God. Here is the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. He has come to bring life, end of sin to the world, peace, hope, Rule, reign, justice. That's what Christ means. But there's a second title. Notice what else it says. It's beginning the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now that's the one that throws a lot of people off, right? What does it mean when Jesus gets the title Son of God? It's a difficult one to explain because culturally we don't understand it. It's used 37 times to describe Jesus in the New Testament. It's used a lot. And it's one that cults like to use to say Jesus was created or that Jesus is not God himself, doesn't share in the nature of God. But that's actually completely wrong. If you stop and understand what the term son of God means, or even the term son of, you will understand something. You know, in, in, in both the Hebrew culture and the Greek culture, the idea of somebody being a son of someone is very important. The oldest child would oftentimes get, in, in the Hebrew culture, a bar put in front of, the, 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 the word bar, B-A-R, put in front of their name. So Peter, Peter, the disciple, the disciple Peter, his name actually was Simon, right? Does anybody know what his last name was? Simon Bar-Jonah. Why did he get Bar Jonah? Bar means son of. Son of Jonah. Peter was the son of Jonah. You know, in, in our culture, if we were doing this today, my son Andrew, his name would be Andrew Bar Stephan. That would actually be his last name, Bar Stephan. Why? Why would we do this? Why would he walk around with the rest of his life being Andrew, son of Stephan? Because in that culture, the firstborn son was actually considered to be carrying on the life of the father. So Andrew, being my firstborn son, would be carrying on the life of me. That's his job. He's actually, this is why, as the firstborn son, he would get the inheritance. He would get the family. He would be in charge of you too. Amber, he would be the one. When I leave, he's in charge. Think about that, right? They stopped taking notes. <laughs> Think about that. Why? Because Andrew would be seen 
as the extension of my rule. He carries on my name, my legacy, my nature. The reason why, now I'm not endorsing this, okay? This is a horrible thing. But the reason why there was so much adultery and concubines and all this kind of stuff, divorce in the Old Testament, is because these men were looking for sons. They wanted boys because they wanted to carry on their lineage. If, if, a, if a man were to die and he had no sons and his brother wasn't married, it was the responsibility of his brother to marry the wife. Does that make sense? I lost myself in that description there. Okay? It'd be the job of the, of the brother, the surviving brother, if he's not married, to marry the wife of his, of his dead brother. And then if they had a boy together, that that boy would not be his son, but would be the son of his dead brother. And he would be carrying on the nature and the lineage and all of the wealth and all of the family stuff would go in there. So when you see son of God, it's a powerful statement because what it's saying is Jesus carries the very nature of God. He's the representative of God on earth. He is actually carrying out the rule and authority and reign. He's the heir. But by being the heir, it means he shares in his nature. So when you see Son of God, it is a description of the nature of Jesus. And it is saying he is God himself. No one would have disputed that. No one, no one. There was no heresy at that time that would have said, oh, Son of God means that he was an offspring of God. No one would, they would have sought as a description of a title, this is Jesus bar God. A specific title given to the one who shares the lineage. And again, the whole image and the worldview of that time would be that that oldest son, that firstborn son, is carrying on the name, the legacy, and the very nature of his father. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, I want to give you the first words about the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who's going to crush the head of the serpent, the one who's going to bring blessings to the nation, the one who's going to, who's going to speak the word of God and whose life is going to come out and bring life in the midst of death. He's going to bring judgment to the, oppressive, to, to the oppressors in the world. He's going to rule with righteousness and be the mediator of a new covenant, Jesus. And I want to tell you the good news about Jesus, not only the Messiah, but the one who is the very nature of God himself, who's extending the rule and the reign, the heir apparent of God. That is Jesus. Beautiful picture. So now, if that's who he is, how do we prepare for Jesus? Okay, so, so that's who's coming over, so to speak. How do you prepare? How do you do as the song that we sung says, let every heart prepare him room. So let's look now at the second point. The preparation for the Messiah. Look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Mark actually quotes from Isaiah 40 verse 3 and Malachi 3 verse 1. He quotes more than Isaiah. He takes these two quotes and these two quotes are simply this. Two promises that God made through the prophets 
that before the Messiah would come, someone would come and prepare the way. Now, everybody understood this, what that meant, that somebody would come and prepare the way for the king of the world to come. That's common in that day. If a king was coming to a place, right, they would prepare the way. They'd make all the roads straight. You know, you don't want the king's cart kind of jostling around. So people would come and repave the roads. They would gather up all the rabble-rousers and throw them in prison. They'd make sure everybody that was standing by looked good and, and, uh, and would just be totally loyal to the king. You know, advanced teams would come. It happens today if our president were to go somewhere. An advanced team would come and prepare the way. But in this case, we have the Messiah, the Son of God, coming. So is the preparation going to be a physical preparation? No. It's a spiritual preparation. So notice the spiritual preparation that comes. Verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It's a very powerful statement of what's happening here. So he says, there's a promise that one would come, and he's saying, John came. There he is. John appeared in the wilderness, and he was proclaiming, notice, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's saying, okay, the issue here, the Messiah is coming, is you've got to have your heart ready. Your heart is not ready, and so the issue here is repentance. Now, we've talked about repentance when we were studying Acts few weeks ago, but I want to review what that means. We know the simple word repentance means just a turn, right? It means a turn. But the interesting thing you need to realize about the turn is this. It's one thing for you to just like apologize. Oh, my bad. I was wrong. My bad. I was wrong. I, but but, but apology, apologizing isn't repenting. Repenting is actually saying, I no longer want to walk in this direction I no longer want to follow myself as Lord. I no longer want to, to be actually going down this road. I actually want to turn and go down a whole new road with a whole new master and a whole new Lord. So repentance isn't just kind of doing a my bad. I used to play basketball with this guy. Man, he'd just be following you all the time. And he'd be like, my bad, but then he'd just do it again. My bad, he'd do it again. He'd always say, my bad, I, my fault. And be like, just stop doing it. That's, you're, my bad is a pointless statement. This continual apology without a repentance is pointless. Repentance is saying, begins with saying, I no longer want to follow myself as Lord. And now I want to turn and I want to follow Jesus as Lord. That's the act of repentance. And this is what he's saying. He's saying, you get to turn. And this is why, as, the, as it describes, notice what he's saying. There's this baptism, right? Because what is baptism saying? I now want to identify. I want to be made clean. I no longer want to be dirty and following after this sin. But I am turning now, and I want to be, clean, be cleansed by God. And that's what John was doing. He's baptizing them. He's letting them know you can be made clean. You can be made right with God. But how does actually repentance look? Because here in verse 5, you got all the country, Judea and Jerusalem, they're all coming out to the river. But notice what it says, that they were confessing their sins. Now this is the thing that you got to understand, because if you understand the, the idea of what repentance is, this idea of turning, 
then you will understand. Repentance helps you understand what the word confession means. And this is where, again, because we don't understand what the word confession means, we get a little thrown off as to how to deal with sin. The word confess, here's what its literal definition is. It's important to know this. It literally means to say the same as. So sometimes when a a church puts a statement together, a statement of faith, and they want everybody in the church to read it, they call it a confession statement, right? You've heard that? Why do they call it a confession statement? You know, if we were all gathering together to do a confession statement, is it like everybody's going to come and go, oh, here's what I sinned this week, right? What, what it, it's a confession statement because it's everybody saying the same statement. Everybody saying the same word together. So if every week we were to read some kind of a, you know, vision statement of our church and we read it out loud, we would call that a confession statement because we're all saying the same thing. That's what confession is. So when you hear the term confessing your sin, you have to realize confessing your sin isn't admitting you did something wrong. It's saying the same thing about your sin that someone else is saying. Now, you're all theologians enough to know who's the person we need to be in agreement with. God, exactly. We need to be saying the same thing God says about our sin. So let me illustrate this for you. Tom and Jack, two friends, they're at a party. A bunch of guys sitting around talking, and Tom decides to tell a joke to make everybody laugh, but the point of the joke is he ends up making Jack look dumb in front of all of his friends. Jack kind of becomes the, the, the subject of the joke, and he ends up making fun of Jack in front of everybody and humiliating Jack in front of all of his friends. And it's one of those good guy moments where the guy doesn't know any boundary, right? So he's just laying it on, just giving it to Jack, right? Every guy went like this. <laughs> we know what that is, right? The guy's just laying it on. So Jack now is completely humiliated, completely embarrassed, you know, completely offended and wants to leave. So he kind of peels off to the back of the, the room because he doesn't want to absolutely leave and, 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 and look weak, but he's pretty humiliated. So he's standing back. After the party, Tom Jack drove together, so Tom says, you ready to go? And Jack just goes, yeah, whatever. Tom goes, what, are you mad about that joke? And, uh, and, and Jack goes, yeah. And then Tom just goes, well, my bad. My bad. Probably shouldn't have told it. Now, how's Jack feeling? He's absolutely not resolved at all whatsoever. There's no resolution. That apology didn't connect. Why? In order for an apology to connect, you have to say the same thing that the person's feeling about their offense. So what would happen if Tom were to say to Jack, oh man, I'm sorry, what bothered you about that? Now, guys very rarely have these kind of conversations, okay? So, like, all the guys are looking at me like, less than what kind of, okay. But let's just say guys did have these kind of conversations, okay? And so, so Tom says to Jack, hey, well, what bothered you? And Jack said, well, man, you embarrassed me. 
humiliated me, made me just look completely dumb in front of all my friends. And to be honest with you, I, I just felt like I wanted to leave. Okay, so let's say Jack says that. And then Tom says, you know what? You're right. I did humiliate you. I did make you look completely foolish in front of all your friends. I did that to you, and I was wrong, and I'm sorry. That is confession. Why? Because Tom is saying the exact same thing that Jack is feeling about his sin. That's what confession means. Confession isn't admitting you did something wrong and defining it by your own terms. Confession is actually saying the exact same thing that the offended party would say about your sin. So if I'm going to confess my sin to God, if I'm going to do that, I'm not just going to go, oh, I got angry, I was wrong, I'm sorry. Well, what would God say about that? God would say, you know what? You violated the gospel. You violated love. You betrayed your family member, whoever you got angry with. You absolutely, absolutely just stood opposed to everything that God loves. Now you say, wow, who wants to do that? That's a painful experience, isn't it? If every time you sin, you have to say the same thing that God says about your sin, you'd be saying, I'd be depressed as all get out. And that would be true if Christ hadn't died on a cross and said, but you know what? When you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive your sins. And so when we lay it all out there, we put it all out there, there is complete and total forgiveness. And that's why there's joy in the gospel. I can say the same thing that God says about my sin and have no fear because Christ died and covered it all. But that's the whole idea of the gospel. This is why the gospel becomes such a rejoicing thing. This is why. And sometimes, as we've walked with Christ for a while, and we've gotten away from the really, really bad things that we did, at least if some of you have a, you know, experience in maybe in your past where you were, you were living in complete rebellion and then God opened your eyes and you embraced him and you were just rejoicing because all those sins have been forgiven and then five years, ten years, twenty years go down the road and man, you know, you're not selling drugs to nine-year-olds, you know, you're, not, you're not doing horrible things, you're not robbing banks, you're not, you know, and so suddenly you can kind of just go through life and then our whole walk with God is kind of like, yeah, my bad. My bad. But then what happens? I'm, I'm not confessing my sins. And the junk's kind of storing up. And then one day, boom, you snap and you yell in a way you never thought you'd ever yell before. You, you do something crazy and you go buy a bunch of things on the internet you shouldn't have bought or you go look at something you shouldn't have looked at. or All of a sudden, you're, where's this coming from? It's because you've lost confession. You've lost that sense of saying, I want to say the same thing about my sin that God says and then rest in the comfort of the cross. Rest in the comfort of it. To actually know that I am forgiven. See, that's the picture here. John comes out and he tells Israel, 
Listen, the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. The promised one. God himself is coming. So say what God would say about your sin and find forgiveness there. Because there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness in this. How do we prepare our hearts for Jesus? How do we let every heart prepare him room? It's by remembering what it means to confess my sins. By remembering the fact that I've got to laying this bare before God. But the good news is you're not laying it bare before God who hates you. You're not laying it bare before God who's wanting you to lay all this stuff out just to mess with you and make you depressed and psychotic as you do it. You're laying it bare before God who says, you know what, I forgave it. I'm cleansing you. We're just bringing all this yuck to the surface so we can wipe it clean. And that your heart would be ready to receive the provision that's to come, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And we're just going to take a moment and reflect on this. Let's just take a moment and reflect on how Israel prepared. Maybe just say, okay, God, how do I prepare my heart? What junk have I allowed to get in the way? Well, we, we deal with our sin, and we confess it because the Messiah has, has come. And what John wants us to see is something very powerful. Or what Mark wants us to see, but John as well. And that's the provision that comes with the Messiah. Because you see the cleansing, he's come into the world, and we're, 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 the hearts are being prepared because a blessing is going to come. And I want you to notice it. Let's look at the provision of the Messiah in verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now John is described this way for a reason. Second Kings, this is how Elijah was described. That's how, how he looked. And in Malachi it says that, that Elijah was going to come ahead of the prophet ahead of the Messiah, ahead of the promised one. And Jesus made the comment. He said, hey, listen, if you can believe it, John was Elijah. He was the one. And this description makes every Jewish reader at least stop and pause and say, whoa, this is that one. This is the one we should be listening to. His message is the message we should be hearing. This is the prophet that's setting the table for the Messiah. And John, he says, now listen, here was his message. Here was his sermon, a very simple sermon. He says, I'm calling you to repentance, but I'm not asking you to follow me. Because one is coming that is so holy and so righteous that I could not even be his slave. I'm so unworthy to be in his presence that I couldn't even put his shoe on for him. That's what he's saying. That's how incredibly holy he is. And he says, now I've baptized you with water, Right? You're coming for this cleansing, for this consecration. But I'm going to tell you something. This Holy One who's coming, you're going to be baptized with something even greater than that. The very Spirit of God is going to come upon you. And so you get a blessing that is beyond compare. You know, you come and you clean out the junk, Israel, is what John is saying. 
Come and, and lay it all before God. Say what God would say about your sin. Experience the forgiveness that God gives because I want you to know something. The very Spirit of God will come and rest upon you. Now, I just made a couple of notes, just quick notes down. And, and I probably should have given it more thought than I did. But I was thinking, just wanted to quickly jot down, what does the Spirit of God do in our life? Why is this important? So I was realizing, I just made a couple of quick thoughts. Just off the top of my head, I was thinking this, okay, here's what the Spirit of God does. He helps you understand the Bible. He helps you obey God. He's the power to change you and set you free from sin. He's the one that guides you and helps you find direction in life. He transforms your mind, and He transforms your life. Now those are just quick thoughts. There's even more than that. The Spirit of God prays for you when you don't know how to pray for yourself. The Spirit of God is present to absolutely cause you to love God's will and God's Word. The Spirit of God does a bunch of things. And so when the Spirit of God takes up residency in a person's life, they are now connected to the thing that allows them to understand God, obey God, be set free from sin, find direction, have your life transformed, have it all, everything change. And it's interesting, because John is saying, okay, this is, this is what happens when that Spirit of God comes. And then what's fascinating for us today now, we've, those of us, we've placed our faith in Christ, and the Spirit is on us, in us. And yet, I can spend a large portion of my life resisting that very Spirit that gives me all of that. I can get up and follow my own flesh. I can get up and not turn to the Word of God to have it change my life. I can, when a problem comes, run away from the people of God. So when I'm in a dark, low moment, I can say, I don't want to be around all those Christians. They'll judge me, right, and follow that, that, that silly temptation that, that Satan's putting before you. Instead of being around the people who can guide you and give you wisdom, I run. I'm going to go bury myself in my house. I'm going to do everything I can to not listen to the guidance of the Spirit. And we do that, don't we? We could all give testimony of all the ways that we run away from the very power that we've been given that takes up residency. Because you see, that's the great, wonderful news, one of the great, wonderful news of the Christmas story is that God made a way for His very Spirit to be present in your life, to guide you, direct you, change you, transform you, cause you to love Him. God's given you all of that. The battle of the flesh is to run away and ignore that, and that's where the conviction of the Spirit comes in, to say, you're running, don't do that. And He's calling you back. He's calling you back. And that process of being called back to walking in the Spirit, as Paul says, is a process of confession. God, yeah, I did. I ran after my own way. I was humiliated. I served my own pride. I didn't want to be before your people and admit and, and, and have them to see who I was. And so I, I hid and I served my ego over you. And whatever it is, whatever those things are, we bring them before God. We experience His forgiveness and, and then experience the joy of being led by the very Spirit of God. Because that's the provision that's behind the Christmas story. When we recognize Jesus came, He came to not only conquer Satan... He came to not only deliver you from hell. He came not only to deliver you from the dominion of darkness. He came not only to transform you into the kingdom of light, but He also came to give you the very Spirit of God. 
and to let that rule and reign in your life. That's just incredible. John is saying, man, get your heart ready because when the Messiah comes, man, he's going to pour his spirit out in you. Get your heart ready. And so what do we do with these verses? How do we sum this up? How do we prepare our hearts? How do we let every heart prepare him room, as the song says? How do we do this? Well, it's pretty simple. Child of God, maybe you've walked with God for a long time, and you have lost track of what it means to to, to come clean before God. Maybe it's possible you've lost track of that. Maybe your, uh, your confession has been more of a, an, an admitting, a my bad, my foul, instead of a laying it bare. And I would encourage you to, 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 to lay it bare, to ask yourself, what loves and what loyalties rule my heart and my life right now that shouldn't be there? What lust of the flesh, what pride of life, what thing in the world owns my heart that shouldn't own it right now. And then say what God would say. But don't say it out of fear of His anger. Say it out of just absolute confidence in His love. Because Christ covered all those sins. You can be free from them. Maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you're here today and you say, I don't know what any of this means. And then I would say, the same news is for you as well. You can be set free. You can have all the junk that owns your heart and your life, all of the pain, all the misery, all the guilt, the embarrassment of your past. You can be set free from all of that. All of it. You can lay it before God. And you could know that Jesus came in the world to take 100% of the punishment, 100% of God's wrath for that sin, so that you could be set free. And not only that, have the very Spirit of God take up residency in your life. And so what we have to do to prepare our hearts, to cleanse it, to deal with it, is to come before God. To come before God. So why don't you just bow your head for a moment. And in just a second, I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying, maybe you could just take this time No time better than now to just lay it before God. Lay your heart, lay your life before God. Experience the joy of being cleansed, and then we can rejoice together in the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And So take a moment in the quietness of this room to do that, and I'll pray. Father, we do come before you. We come before you now in the joy of Jesus. Messiah has come. Messiah has come to rule. Messiah has come to reign. Messiah has come to deliver us from the power of sin. You came. And we can lay our life bare before you. And we can say what you have said. That we have walked away from you. We have served ourselves. We served our own pride. We served our own ego. 
We've hurt our family members. We've hurt others. We have caused pain to many people, God. Lord, there's things in, our, in, in many of the past of people in this room where they are ashamed of and they're afraid of. Things that they're hiding, things that they're hoping nobody finds out. God, I pray that they would be set free, that we would be able to lay this bare before you and prepare our hearts for you. I pray, God, that people would recognize that when forgiveness comes, it comes in full and in total. And so, God, may we lay our hearts bare before you. For those in this room that have never done that, Lord, may today be the day where they experience life and joy and peace. And God, would all of us remember the joy that comes when we confess our sins. And Lord, I thank you for the power of the Spirit that rules and reigns and convicts us of sin, that calls us back to you and gives us the, the ability and the desire to even do it. Lord, may our ears and our hearts be attuned to, to follow that leading of the Spirit. And God, may today be a day where our hearts are prepared and we are ready to worship Jesus because He died and took all of the punishment for all of our sins so that we might be made right with you. And I pray all this in his glorious name. Amen.